Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I first met Sean McBride in the early 1970s when I was a member of the National Executive of Amnesty Ireland and he was chairman. My first meeting of the executive was in Roebuck House in Clonski, where he lived. I knew nothing about McBride prior to this first meeting. The man I met was the epitome of old-world courtesy and charm. He greeted me warmly and welcomed me to the executive. I was struck by his heavy French accent. It was, in fact, his first language. On every following occasion I attended at Roebuck House, he could not have been more welcoming. It was only as the years passed that I came to realise the extraordinary career he had and the violently different emotions he engendered in those that knew him. Sean McBride was born in Paris on the 26th of January 1904 to Maud Gahn, a woman frequently referred to at that time as Ireland's Joan of Arc. His father, Major John McBride, was the militant hero of the Boer War who had fought the British. The marriage of Maud and John, however, was spectacularly unsuccessful. Married in February 1903, they fell apart in bitter recrimination in October 1904. Baby Sean was baptised in Dublin on the 1st of May 1904. It was the first of Sean's many mentions in police records as Maud's presence in Ireland was noted by the watchful authorities. Maud and Child returned to Paris where their home was a centre of Irish nationalism. In 1914, Maud brought Sean to Ireland where he was interviewed by Patrick Pearce with the intention that he would enrol at St Andrews. The beginning of the Great War ended that plan. Instead, Sean stayed in Paris and went to that city's Gonzaga College. In May 1916, the rector of the college, reading out the grim daily list of the war dead, announced the death of Major John McBride, the father of one of their pupils. He said that he had been executed by the British, fighting for the freedom of his country. The death of McBride transformed Maud's attitude to her former husband. Having forsworn his name during their marriage, she now adopted the name Maud Gone McBride. Those who enter eternity by the great door of sacrifice atone for all, she wrote. In October 1916, Maud, Sean and his half-sister Isolt moved to Dublin. They renewed a close friendship with W.B. Yeats, Maud's perennial but unsuccessful suitor. Yeats described Sean as the most remarkable boy I have met self-possessed and very just, seeing all around a question and full of tact. Sean, however, was his father's son and soon, though underage, joined the IRA. When hostilities commenced in 1919, he joined in with great energy and nerve. He was involved in several dramatic ambushes of the military. His activities in the Mount Street area of Dublin were such that he drew the attention of Michael Collins. Collins sent him on special missions, buying arms on the continent and leading attacks on RIC barracks in Wicklow, Wexford and Carlow. During the treaty negotiations in London in the autumn of 1921, Collins brought the 17-year-old Sean to London as one of his bodyguards. When the treaty was signed, however, Sean was opposed. 
On the 20th of June 1922, he joined a large group of anti-treaty IRA who had occupied the Four Courts in April. There, he met Catalina Bulfen of Common Amon, known as Kid, whom he would later marry. Dramatic events soon unfolded. Following the arrest of Leo Henderson, a senior officer of the anti-treaty forces, Sean McBride and Ernie O'Malley set out to capture General J.J. Ginger O'Connell in retaliation. They found him walking from Leeson Street to Beggar's Bush Barracks, bundled him into a car at gunpoint and brought him back a prisoner to the Four Courts. It was the last straw for the government. Early the following morning, they decided to attack the Four Courts and thus the deadly civil war ensued with all its tragic consequences. The anti-treaty garrison surrendered a few days later. In the following years, McBride briefly acted as private secretary to de Valera. He became for a time the IRA's director of intelligence and later served as IRA chief of staff, but finally abandoned the armed struggle in 1937. He was called to the bar, soon became senior counsel and defended many of the IRA prosecuted by de Valera's government. He entered politics and, in 1949, led his party, Klanda Poblakta, into the first inter-party government. As Minister for External Affairs, he championed Ireland's leaving the Commonwealth and becoming the Republic of Ireland. During his time as Minister, he led Ireland into the Council of Europe and was a strong supporter of the European Convention on Human Rights. He was one of the earliest to recognise Ireland's future in Europe and did much to encourage the development of the European movement. In 1961, he co-founded Amnesty International and became renowned globally for his commitment to humanitarian causes. He became Secretary-General of the International Committee of Jurists and Assistant Secretary-General of the United Nations and, in 1974, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work to protect human rights. He died on the 15th of January 1988 and is buried with Catalina in the Republican plot in Glasnevin Cemetery. His career was one of striking contrast between the early violence and his later commitment to the peaceful resolution of disputes. His life was devoted to the fight against colonialism to the protection of human rights, notably the rights of prisoners, and to ending the partition of Ireland. No one could have foreseen such a future when on that fateful night he and Ernie O'Malley sallied forth from the Four Courts to capture Ginger O'Connell and thus spark the civil war on the 26th of June 1922, 100 years ago today. In the company of a gaggle of school friends on a circuitous route to Germany by train and boat in 1969, the Westbury horse slid into view and interrupted our first morning taste of English cider and egg sandwiches in the train bar. Brief though the view was, I was captivated by the vast figure, 
one of the famous Wiltshire white horses, carved into chalk grasslands on the earth ramparts of an Iron Age fort on Westbury Hill. Encountering such an elegant sunlit horse on a Wiltshire slope as the train chugged along allowed me to witness how the land can be used as a canvas, how it accepts human markings of our impressions and perspectives of life, sometimes on a grand scale. This particular horse represents a backwards journey in time and is thought to have been carved in 1778 over an older horse that had legendary associations with King Alfred. Today, the artist who brings me right back to that first sighting is Eric Revilius, the English painter, designer, illustrator and wood engraver. He died 80 years ago this year and his watercolour of the Westbury horse is dated 1939. Known as an artist of Sussex and the Downs, he's one of those painters whose work provides an ardent, unusual record of pastoral England, its customs and culture. When Revilius graduated in 1925, train travel was highly fashionable and increasing numbers of people began exploring Britain by whatever form of locomotion was available. With his drawing board in a canvas satchel and a lightweight sketching easel on his shoulder, he would explore the downs like the topographical painters of old, either by train, by car or on foot. What I enjoy about his work is not so much the subjects, though they obviously hold enormous appeal, but the unexpected angle from which he paints them and the unusual ways of bringing his subject to life, using a dry brush technique and plenty of cross-hatching. I imagine him perched outdoors, setting himself up to sketch that Wiltshire white horse, for example, or preparing to outline the Beachy Head lighthouse, which also features in his work. It's not just that the work provides an account of older seasonal rituals, for example in the watercolour called Furlongs, painted in 1934, which depicts part of a flint-fronted house and garden, two haystacks and a trail of horses bearing hay-loaded carts in the background. The house remains today, although the horses and old agricultural methods are gone. Revilius used to stay here with his friend the designer Peggy Angus and many other artists would converge on the cottage over the years, including Mvanwy Piper and Percy Horton. Revilius's watercolour interior at Furlongs shows a spare interior with a brick floor, undecorated walls, but red curtains hang at the window and the brightness of the countryside beyond fills the room with light. Revilius captures the energy of place in a way that, despite the plainness of the painting, doesn't suggest austerity. In work like this, partly sustained by modernism as an ethos, he somehow encapsulates the careless innocence of a lost society between the wars and obscured through war. In his time, Revilius focused on water wheels on a deserted but tilled landscape, the downs in winter with a field roller and a bleak expanse of land, and the interior of a greenhouse in which yellow tomatoes ripen on vines. 
I want to be in that greenhouse because I can smell the vines and feel the heat. And I want to touch the delicate petals in twin lines of orange cyclamen, potted and ready for sale. As a war artist, he undertook a series of coastal views, the most thrilling of which for me has to be the one called Beachy Head. Again, there's that special perspective with sharply defined angles and, although this is a night scene, the land and sky tease the viewer with light while the chalk cliffs of the channel coast and sea are vivid and luminous. To execute the work, he set himself up at various points on the cliffs as the work evolved. After a later exhibition, the London Sunday newspaper's warm response was, he later declared in a letter to a colleague, a kind of reward for the lumbago and the march winds. But I return to the Westbury horse as Revilius presents it. Delicate hooves pointing into the hillside. Its curved muzzle and pointed ears reminding me not only of my own times past on a train frothing with girls from the St. Louis convent, but more importantly, the times past of Eric Revilius, England's vernacular pastoral artist. He was killed in 1942, aged 39, while on active service as war artist with the Royal Air Force off the coast of Iceland. I was nine when I first heard a song by Alton John. My father, always a stalwart jazz fan, had mentioned that there was a song being played on the radio and that I'd probably like it. It was called Part-Time Love and it was quite good, apparently. For my dad, quite good meant it was probably brilliant. Sure enough, in the car on the way into school a couple of mornings later, on it came. I remember being struck by how infectious it was, how it made me want to dance. My father's interest in Elton John peaked with that one song, but not mine. Part-time love was everywhere that autumn, and I learned it off by heart. I even wrote the lyrics down in the back of my homework copy, so I could be word perfect and impress everyone. Part-time love is bringing me down, cause I just can't get it started with you, my love. My teacher, who apparently hadn't even a passing acquaintanceship with Pop, found my scribbled lyrics. She thought it was a poem I'd written myself. But it was repetitive, she said, and anyway, it made no sense. Part-time what? What could I possibly not get started? The car? A book? My homework? Where's the rhythm? she asked. Where's the metre? I had no answers, and I didn't have Elton's phone number either, so I couldn't ask him. I loved music as a child. A tiny transistor wedged under my pillow opened the door to pirate stations and late night radio and I kept a record player, suitcase style, under my bed. Not having older siblings, 
I had no guaranteed access to new records or cool music, so most of my musical discoveries I made on my own. After Part-Time Love, I quickly uncovered other songs. It felt like I was the last person to arrive at the Elton John party that had been in full swing for years. But still, Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 2, an unexpected and extravagant present from a family friend, up to the ante. Now I was fully anointed among the fans. I spent hours deciphering the lyrics on the album sleeves, uncritically wanting only to hear them over and over again. I played that record on repeat until my mother begged me to find something else to listen to. I did, for a day or two, and then I went back to Elton. It was obvious to me from early on that restraint was not a feature of either Elton John's music or his personality. Everything was huge. The costumes, the glasses, the showmanship. Such glitz tantalised, hinting at a world where not only was there colour, there was a lot of fun. Elton's domain was a parallel sphere of love and longing, a glittery extravagance of music. In his songs, he went after what he wanted. If he didn't succeed, he tried again. Whatever happened, there were always other shots at redemption, another chance to shine. I would be filled with anticipation when I dropped the needle on any one of his masterful songs. Tiny Dancer, Crocodile Rock, Tonight, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, The Crackle of Vinyl Before the Opening Piano Chords, the irresistible pleasure of being locked away with the music while the rest of the world carried on as normal. As I listened, I became aware of the yearning that permeated the songs, a search for love and meaning and acceptance that seemed so central to Elton's inner life. And through all the thwarted love and missed opportunities, the secrets he didn't share, there was the music, those glorious piano chords, the rise and fall of cadences that never failed to leave me wanting more. It wasn't radical, being an Elton John fan, and it didn't make me particularly cool, but it was the music, those irresistible hooks that grabbed me and held on for years and years. By the time Elton John discovered synthesizers in the mid-80s, my attention had begun to drift, subsumed by other musicians, other singers, different styles of music, pop and ska, new wave and American rock. Elton John became slightly embarrassing. I was Simon Peter, denying the singer who had accompanied me for a lengthy chunk of my childhood. Older again now, I don't really care if I'm cool or not. Elton, high on the success of Rocketman, is the latest of my favourites to retire. I'm not one of the lucky ones with a ticket to his farewell tour. Such is the demand to see him. My father, having introduced me to the music when I was nine, remains unmoved by Elton's superannuation. But even without a ticket to the concert, I can still go back to the records, carefully stashed on my shelves. And there I'll find those songs that first entranced me when I was nine. Songs which still have the power to grab me, to fold back time, to open up the limitlessness of youth. And that can only be a good thing. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside 
My friend Una and I go back a long way. As a child in the early 70s, she and her family moved back to Sligo from Manchester. She and I became firm friends. Now in our 50s, we speak regularly and meet when we can. But until recently, we weren't aware of the shared history that predates our lifelong friendship. Our grandfathers fought together in the Irish War of Independence. And in June 1921, my grandfather Jack was part of a team that rescued Una's grandfather Charles from Sligo Jail. Charles Gildee was said to be one of the most dangerous men in County Sligo at the time. He joined the Irish Volunteers in 1917. Although most would not have known it then, he was also a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, a secret organisation actively planting radicals within the Irish Volunteers. In February 1921, he was in Glynisk, near the Sligo-Mayo border, planning an attack on British troops. Suddenly his position was compromised, so he made a break for the mountains, but he was caught and sent to Sligo jail. There he met two men who were, it was widely rumoured, soon to be executed, Frank O'Byrne and Tom Degnan. With nothing to lose, all three began planning their escape. However, since the escape of IRA leader Frank Carty from Sligo jail the year before, security at the jail had tightened considerably up to 40 British troops with two mounted machine guns now guarded the jail, and guards walked the corridors every 15 minutes. In this new climate, any jailbreak would have to be timed to perfection. The escape was planned and led by Sligo Town IRA men. Slowly, they began to move the pieces into place. A sympathetic warder took an impression of a master key in a bar of soap and brought it out to the IRA. A replica key was duly made and the warder brought it back in. But to everyone's dismay, the key was imperfect and would not open the locks. They would have to try again. As the anxious prisoners waited to hear their fate, the warder secured another impression of a master key and the new replica was passed to Charles. Outside the jail, the IRA, including my grandfather Jack, were standing by. Jack had joined the Irish Volunteers in 1918 and began actively disrupting British influence in South Sligo. He was involved in the Frank Carty jailbreak from Sligo Jail in 1920. Now poised for a second daring jailbreak, Jack, O.C. Pilkington and their comrades patiently watched the jail, waiting for the right moment. On the 29th of June 1921, the final important piece fell into place when one Warder Henry, also sympathetic, came on duty. Later that night, three IRA men scaled the wall using an extending ladder on the outside and dropped a rope ladder down the inside. Warder Henry unlocked a critical door and the IRA men made their way inside the prison. Henry was tied up to cover his part in the operation and only requested, if I'm shot, look after my wife and children. Soon, the men made their way back out, passing Hangman's Yard. Charles was heavier than the others, and so climbed the rope ladder last. My grandfather Jack and two others sat astride the prison wall to help the six men over and to cover the retreat. I wonder 
What happened as Jack and Charles passed each other on the wall of Sligo Jail that night? Was there a nod, a quiet word? Safely over the wall, Charles Gildee and his comrades went on the run. Two weeks later, on the 11th of July 1921, a truce was called and the War of Independence ended. Those on the run came home as heroes. But within the year, deep divisions about the Anglo-Irish Treaty that followed the truce led to civil war. Like so many, our grandfathers believed that the treaty was incompatible with the Declaration of the Irish Republic in 1916, to which they were already oath-bound. So they continued to fight. During the Civil War, Charles was arrested and released. For the most part, my grandfather, Jack, withdrew from active service to assist the Sligo Divisional Adjutant, Brian McNeil, who, prior to his own tragic death on Ben Bulban in 1922, operated from a hidden office in Clunacool. Years later, Jack became Director of Elections for Eamon de Valera in the Sligo Leitrim area. He always called him Mr de Valera, never Dev. Commemoration is difficult, often hinging on simple binaries, and war is never simple. Hurt runs deep, and memory is both selective and fickle. As Una and I plan to meet up this month, 100 years on from the start of the Irish Civil War, we remember all those who fought so hard to create this, our imperfect present. And we especially remember our grandfathers, Charles Gildee and Jack Brennan. I have forgotten the words of my prayers. You'd wonder how a thing like this can happen. After all, they were drip-fed into me by repetitive rote in the same way that poems were at school. It's strange how I can recite Wordsworth or Shelley but struggle with a response to the rosary. My grandmother was the matriarchal pillar of our household. She was in charge of giving out the prayers for the nightly rosary. We'd rearrange kitchen chairs to support our elbows and kneel with our backs to the fire, this a reminder of the everlasting flames of hell as it toasted our bottoms. No matter how fast word rushed and mumbled our response, it never affected my grandmother's speed of delivery. She savoured each prayer as she rotated her beads between work-blunted fingers. I sometimes liked to dangle my rosary beads and attract the curiosity of the cat. But that was only if I saw that my grandmother's eyes were devotedly shut. She believed in the power of prayer, and it was the trimmings that were her speciality. This was the high point, the crescendo of her nightly oration. She'd add small customised invocations to her litany. That a certain neighbour's health might improve, that the weather would suit the saving of hay, or that her daughters in England would keep their faith. Sometimes she'd remove a trimming if she believed her prayers were answered. However, this was rare. 
More often than not, she'd add a new supplication. I can't recall when she added the prayer for the conversion of Russia, but there it was, part of her nightly trimmings, a prayer for the conversion of Russia. Perhaps this particular trimming coincided with the issue in 1965 of a government information leaflet. One was sent to each household in the country. Ireland at that time was no different to many parts of the world in that it was fixated with Cold War politics and the atomic bomb. The Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962 was the closest the opposing nations of the USA and the USSR came to nuclear war. The pamphlet issued by the Irish government was gloomily entitled Boss Baha, Survival in a Nuclear War, Advice on Protection in the Home and on the Farm. 700,000 copies of this leaflet were distributed across the state. The illustrations were of comic book cartoon quality and on the basis of what we have since come to know, the safety measures recommended therein were hopelessly inadequate. Yet at a time of Cold War paranoia, we took the advice very seriously. My grandmother hung the pamphlet from a nail located beside the electricity fuse box. When we knelt for those epic rosary renditions, our eyes might be drawn to the cover illustration which depicted a stylized atomic mushroom cloud and a similarly rendered nuclear family huddling for safety in the inner room of their cartoon house. One suggestion in the booklet was that in case of nuclear fallout, we should remove the room doors from their hinges and stack them alongside a stout table and take refuge under that table until the all-clear was sounded. This duck-and-cover tactic had been advocated by Americans in locations where no bomb shelters were available. I tried to imagine how long my grandmother and myself could hold out under the table and redoubled my prayers. I sometimes wonder if my grandmother placed that leaflet beside the fuse box as a reminder of her late husband, my grandfather's prophecy. He refused to allow electricity into the house as part of the rural electrification scheme. His argument was that if all homes across the country were wired to a central power plant at Shannon, and if one madman dropped a bomb there, to quote himself, we'd all be blown up in our beds. Shortly after his passing, my grandmother contacted the ESB. We were then living in the age of the four-minute warning, but the bomb never fell and the button remained unpushed. Even so, I never recall her trimmings becoming any shorter. Still, you knew her petitions were coming to a finish when my grandmother said her prayers for the conversion of Russia. That was our four-minute warning. Perhaps in the age in which we live, it's time again to start rediscovering my lost words of prayer. Authenticities for John Behan.
He lives at the end of the road, where the waters remain steady, whatever their rise and fall. The greeny undergrowth sways like the tops of trees as the limbs of the canal disappear within Nun's Island. In his apron, the artist fashions a world. Ships, flights of birds abound, and from their dusty clouds of being, human shapes emerge to become our better selves. On this morning's Sunday Miscellany programme, we heard Sean McBride, Child Soldier to Nobel Laureate by John Hedigan, Eric Revilius and the Westbury White Horse by Mary O'Donnell, Elton John, The Music and Me by Doreen Finn, Sligo Jailbreak 1921 by Breege Brennan, Prayers for the Conversion of Russia by Joe Carney, and Authenticities a poem for John Behan by Gerald Daw. The music on this morning's programme was The Hair by The Gloaming, Adieu by Elgar, played on piano by Christopher Heddington, Your Song by Elton John, The Ash Plant Reel by Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill, and Splendid Isolation by Brendan McGlinchey, played by Gronia Hambly on harp. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.